I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in the evening dews and lamps. I have read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His day is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory. Hello, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I'm uh, digging deeper into the American Civil War, looking at this uh, huge four-volume anthology of Civil War writings from, uh, from various points of view, um, really covering the end part of 1863. So yes, well, September through October and November um, into, into December, I guess. So I guess we got the Gettysburg Address in here. I presume so. I've talked about that before in my series on Lincoln. So I might not uh, try to repeat myself too much on that and go back a couple years to my podcast to find my series on Abraham Lincoln's writings. Um, but anyways, let's jump right into it because um, there's some fun stuff in here. So first we have a, a letter, a private letter um, dated August 29th, 1863 uh, by William T. Sherman to Henry Halleck. Now, Halleck, of course, is in the Army headquarters in Washington at this point. And we saw him previously taught, write to Grant about um, about various issues. Um, uh, the impact of black troops, I, th I think it was. Or the use of black troops. And and uh, we see Grant, we saw Grant come around on that issue pretty quickly after the defeat, after the victory at Vicksburg. But this was actually a solicited letter uh, to the generals in the field at various places in the South about Reconstruction, essentially. And, um, of course, when we think of Reconstruction today at this moment of historiography, we, of course, think about the fate of enslaved men and women, about land reform, the failures of it, black activism, and these kinds of questions. Um, of course, Reconstruction at the time was often conceived of as in more of a strictly political term, right? Like even Lincoln was much more interested in just ending the war, reuniting the nation, than really thinking about the fate of black people. And of course, that's one of the great tragedies of Reconstruction is that the more revolutionary potential of it was failed. I just say that because Sherman's document here is not really going to be talking about that side of it, except obliquely. Um, so first of all, he does this kind of class analysis of the South, and he breaks down the South into different groups. And he, it's notable he doesn't mention black people. He doesn't, they're not really being thought of in Sherman's mind as a potential political force in the South. Again, a little bit of a limit to his imagination. But the first group he mentions are the planters. And his opinion is sort of that they have the most to lose. So they might be uh, soon with it. He actually says like a two battles later. If we can win two more big battles, they may start to waver. But they have the most to lose in a war that leads to the total defeat of the South. But they also have the most to gain from secession. And they were behind it. So he thinks this class can't really be reasoned with necessarily. But they can be coerced because they have so much to lose. They can basically have a gun put to their head and say, you can keep some of your wealth and we won't shoot you and take it all, or we'll take it all. And, and he said, that's what it's really come to, to win that class. And here's where he does mention black people. He says, slavery is already gone, and to cultivate the land, Negro or other labor must be hired. 
This is itself a vast revolution, and time must be allowed to, to afford it to allow men to adjust their minds and habits to the new order of things. A civil government of the representative type would suit this class far less than a pure military rule. In fact, that's kind of his overall conclusion on Reconstruction, is that essentially it's going to require a military dictatorship, at least for a while. The second class he mentioned are the small farmers, uh, working class people, the three-fourths of the southern white population. And he says these guys have been driven into war. They're not really interested in the Confederacy. They don't have any material. And, I mean, it's amazing how he does this like almost Marxist class analysis, right? He says these aren't the people who really have an invested interest in the property class of the South. Um, and he thinks they can basically be wooed by the semblance of democracy, by restoring some, at least a, a facade of democracy in the South. These can be wooed. Um, he talks about the union men, um, and f interestingly, he says, I have little respect for the class, uh, for this class. I think it's because they're basically a little too silent in his view. It's like if they were real true union men, they'd be like waging a war of insurrection against the Confederacy or something. They're a little too complaining. You know, they complain a lot. They demand a lot. They expect to be treated specially when the army comes in. So he just sort of disregards them as, as, as a cowardly class. Um, and that they often serve the Confederacy even if they're unionists. Now, the class he's most worried about is not like the poor whites. Like, if you look at Reconstruction, I know the Klan, the White League, a lot of them are former Confederate veterans. It might be this class. Um, this is kind of an ambiguous class. It's, it's not really the poor whites. Some of these are sons of planters. But basically, he calls these the young bloods of the South, sons of planters, lawyers around town, good billiard players and sportsmen, men who never did work or never will. So yeah, obviously he's not talking about the poor whites. That's the second class, the small farmers. Um, but even that doesn't quite fit. I, there seems to be a, a chunk. He's doing a lot with that small farmer class, I think. Uh, there's a lot of different interests and, and things like that in that, uh, in that group. Many actively fought for the Confederacy and believed in slavery even if they weren't slaveholders. But he's most worried about this kind of aimless. This, 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 this is the class that's most likely to uh, maybe not have a very conscious of the material interests they might have in, in the Southern order um, or how it can be salvaged through some sort of peace deal. But these are the people who kind of like live their life of adventure, who, who buy into the Southern aristocratic kind of philosophy and embrace it as sort of the knights of it. And these are the people who enthusiastically got involved in the war. And he even mentioned some names like uh, Stuart, Forrest and Jackson, who are some of the more uh, colorful generals of the of the Confederacy, to put it lightly. These are some of the people who uh, achieved great successes in the battlefield and, and had that reputation of, of reckless attack and, and um, kind of that more, at least on the surface, I, concept of chivalry or something. Of course, they're, they're all slaveholders, right? But anyways, he says that this class basically has to be killed off or captured. Uh, before they'll be subdued. Then he says, well, what would we actually do? And he says, well, basically any kind of true civil de regime, democracy for the South, restoration of civil rights and all that is not going to work. You basically have to have a military rule for a, for a long time. Um, so he says the war is going to have to go on. And it would have to be ruled until, ruled directly until basically the Southern ruling class is completely devastated and, and broken. Um, 
he talks about different locations and some of the geography of it was interesting. But he, he says this war is going to go on. It's going to take a while to get to the point of reconstruction. And and it's basically the South is piece by piece going to have to be reincorporated into into the into the Union. Um, what else do you say here? Um, talks a little bit about recruiting from southern locales foreign, in foreign intervention or whatever. But essentially, he's making a case here for continued military uh, rule of the South long after the war ends. So all in all, really, really fascinating document. All right. So next, we, we actually have three documents here all about the Battle of, of Chickamauga. And this is this is kind of the opening of a of a new phase in the war after the fall of, of Vicksburg, which is that that like center movement through Atlanta. It's going to culminate in the the march to the sea, Sherman's march to the sea. But before that could happen, Atlanta had to be taken, and that meant the heights around Atlanta in eastern Tennessee and in northern Georgia were going to have to be overcome. And so this was going to be like the next major campaign of of the war in the West and, and in many ways the most significant. This, if you think back, this is like the continuation of that Anaconda strategy, which was cut the South in half and then continuing cutting it in half into chunks until until finally they surrendered, the strangling them with the sea blockade and by internally dividing it. Um, very, very significant in the final defeat of, of the Confederacy. But the Battle of Chickamauga was like a battle in Georgia that, uh, and it Actually, I think, yeah, uh, Longstreet's troops from Virginia were sent there, um, which is actually, um, I think that Lee was not, I mean, Lee was always fighting in Virginia. He didn't realize how important the West was, I think, until this point, until maybe the fall of Vicksburg. So he sent a big portion of his army to... To, to, to this battle only won and it was a major victory I think the great you know with the greatest victory by the south in in the west and um, a super bloody battle too with uh, with around 4,000 deaths on both sides mostly confederate but still the union overall suffered 16,000 casualties wounded captured and killed um, so it was a pretty big route uh, that pushed the Union Army back. And then I think that's like sets up the that like Missionary Ridge campaign that in in eastern Tennessee or something. Um, at least that's how I remember it. Now we have here two eyewitness accounts of well, th all three are eyewitness accounts, I guess, of the battle. The first is uh, William W. Hartsill, uh, a soldier in the Confederate Army, and he gives his account of the of the happenings of the of the lead up to the battle and then the battle itself and then its aftermath so um yeah if you're interested in those kinds of documents it's here uh but he talks not here not only of the battle itself which only actually covers a couple pages of this document but this follow-up where the confederates moved into positions in uh in missionary ridge and things around uh chattanooga and and setting up that defensive position which would be basically the the setting for the the atlantic campaign uh then we have another uh confederate voice someone from the fifth kentucky infantry um which had fought all the way back to shiloh this guy named john jackman and so he was 
this is more of a direct account of the battle itself but it's only it's also only a couple pages but uh you know you get the sense like so many of the confederate victories that this was incredibly costly and just the the number of, of deaths and, and losses and that's what jackman spends a lot of the time talking about now this theme of just the cost of the war is carried on on the third perspective which is also another confederate perspective but this is from kate cumming uh in her journal from september 28th to october 1st which uh, is she was um caring for the sick so she was working at a hospital as a hospital matron in chattanooga after the battle and she had to deal with the uh, the many, the many numerous victims of the battle. Um, I guess I guess this is a an attack that was strategically significant. It did put the Confederacy in a much more defensive position. Had this battle, had the Union Army not been driven from the field here at Chickamauga, it may have led to a much quicker fall of Atlanta. I suspect because it would take another you know a few months for um for Atlanta to finally fall, but. Uh, but still, it's like this strategy of just throwing these young men into these battlefields, into these battles, with this hope of like some kind of knockout blow. It, it seems, you know, the generals really haven't learned anything from the Gettysburg campaign. Um, but in this case, at least it was on the on paper a success. But but the campaign's lost, right? And that's. Uh, I don't, know, I don't know what to say about it. It's just uh, it's a significant battle, I guess. Um, this is followed by a speech given by Jefferson Davis at Missionary Ridge. So this is where the Confederate forces sort of put up their defensive position after the Battle of Chickamauga um, and would hold until um, until finally Rosecrans and Sherman and those people seized Chattanooga and, and were able to finally move on Atlanta. Now, I, I really don't know what to say about this document, I guess. It's not a very interesting speech. It's just a, a, a speech to the troops saying, oh, you won the great victory um, and you're full of patriotism and the obedient, you know, the soldier's first duty is, is courage and, you know, this kind of thing. Now, like another speech, this one's very short, but it's directed to those troops and it's, it doesn't have much purpose when we compare it to another speech given around the same time in the aftermath of a battle, um, which is so significant in its meaning in what it's trying to say. Uh, obviously I'm talking about the Gettysburg address here when it's actually redefining the purpose of the war um, and redefining the purpose of the nation. It's, it is of course one of the most important speeches, if not the most important speech in American history um, and the context for it is, is similar. It's after a battle, it's talking about the soldiers in, in a way. Although Lincoln's speech is, I guess, directed more uh, to a civilian audience, but of course he has the soldiers in mind uh, when he's given the speech. This is given directly to the troops, but it's all about uh, valiant effort and courage and how you know, the attack won the day. It's not, you know, there's stuff here about the people thanking them, but it doesn't have, we see the difference in the leadership and the strategy about, you know, making this war about something. And you just don't see that in Jefferson Davison's, Davis's account here in his speech. It's just, uh, but what else can he do? 
he's incapable of imagining a different South. So unfortunately, um, all he can do is pat the soldiers on the back and and shed a few tears for the for the numerous dead. Now, next we have a document by a man named Oliver Norton to his uh, to his sister, and he's talking about being promoted uh, to an officer um, position. Now he is uh, he was a member of I don't know the exact brigade he was a part of, but it was one of the ones involved in the defense of Little Ron Top, right? And and I guess the document here doesn't really, it's not that historically significant to me, um, except insofar as it talks about the consciousness that Gettysburg was really changing the fortunes of the war um, and thinking about the election, I guess. Um, now, there's other documents that probably can speak to that. And obviously, the defeat at Chickamauga was significant in an election year, coming up anyways. And it would be used by peace Democrats against Lincoln. But from the soldier's point of view here that, you know, you can tell he's fully with Lincoln, which, of course, is how soldiers voted in 64. But otherwise, I'm not quite sure what to... Um, what to make of this particular document it, it seems it's just a couple pages though so it, it's fine um next we have another jefferson davis speech at wilmington um and this is not the speech itself this is just the journalistic account of the speech but um and different speeches he actually gives and a, a tour he's giving um so this is just a report on the speech but it's the same kind of stuff um what is it we are all engaged in the same cause. We must all make sacrifices. We must use forbearance with each other. We are all liable to err. Your generals may commit mistakes. Your president may commit mistakes. You yourself may commit mistakes. This is human. We must cultivate harmony, unanimity, concert of action. So, so this is the the government that praised itself on like being a supporter of like individual freedoms, right? Or at least in lost cause rhetoric, it's presented that way. I, I don't think the Confederacy ever really was for those values. But at least that's how lost causers like to think about it. Um, but no, it's all here. It's we need to all have unanimity and all think alike and all work together no matter what. A lot of just silly jingoistic stuff, rah rah, good work, soldiers. We need to be resolute and united and all that. And again, comparing this to the speech Lincoln's going to give the same month, November 1863, it's. Uh, it's it's just rhetorically I don't there's nothing the South can do except uh, I guess keep going because it's dug its grave by this point uh, I mean in many ways it dug its grave back in 61 when it was formed or when it fired the first shot but it wasn't at, it was clear till the second half of 63 and then what can you do right it's like what can the president here do? The president, in quotes. So the next one I want to talk about is a really nice document by uh, Cornelia Hancock, who was a nurse at Gettysburg. And then by the winter of 63, she's serving in a, um, a contraband hospital near Washington. So this is a hospital for the servicing the so-called contraband, right? The, the runaway slaves who were latching on to union positions um, and weren't really, couldn't be resettled yet 
because there wasn't really a policy about that. You know, many of these were women and children, people, you know, couldn't serve or old, for whatever reason, they couldn't be mobilized into the army. Uh, some were put to work, but a lot of these people were in these camps, um, basically refugee camps. And, uh, you know, the question of what to do with them was a big one throughout the war. But here we just see how bad conditions could be in these uh, diseases spreading rapidly, lack of clothing. And here we have winter coming up, right? Even in even in Virginia, Washington, that area, November can get pretty brisk, obviously. Um, I'm from Wisconsin, and we tend to we kind of think everything else is always warm or something. But, you know, when I... Uh, you know, and then I, when I did move south was Florida, so I did kind of, that just reinforces that perspective. But, you know, in the, the middle, it, it did get cold in the winter. Um, but there are good, there seems to be good work being done at these hospitals, such as va vaccinations. Um, and some health care provided, but they just seem overwhelmed and they're facing people coming in, uh, people who are crippled, old, uh, wounded through various things uh people people victims of white violence uh at the camps obviously just because you crossed over to contraband camps didn't mean you weren't subject to racist violence by um even by unionists um slaves arriving every day uh it's just a couple pages but some really powerful stuff here uh, she tells the story here of some slaves from Louisiana who came, who had the master's name branded on his forehead um, and all sorts of other evidence of torture he provided. And he brought with him some of this actual physical evidence of his torture, such as photographs and the actual collars and other pieces of tor like instruments of torture that were used on him during his enslavement. Uh, the chains and the, the collars and like a bell quote at, at night they hung a little bell on the prongs above his head so that if he hit any any of the bushes it would tinkle and tell his whereabouts the baton that was used to whip him so this slave who ran away from louisiana i don't know that's not it's not explained here how he got there through the army or some other means but he took the time while running away to bring with him evidence of of how brutal slavery was for him and i think that's so impactful to me because you imagine most people ran away just for trying to save their lives and escape slavery but that he thought it was important to have a document to to document the torture he faced it's it really really impactful for me um she concludes with this class of beings those who wish to do good to the contrabands must labor their standard of mortality is very low um just overwhelmed with the the challenge before them and this is a prelude to what reconstruction would require um it would require if it would have been successful which it wasn't it would have required an investment in time and energy in improving the material conditions of former slaves both in terms of policy land reform but also in labor uh whether it was like like the stuff the freedmen's bureau tried to do um it would also require uh, listening to former slaves giving them as much leadership as they wanted and deserved and you know and just in making that a center point of reconstruction which of course some wanted but it wasn't the mainstream view in the north and certainly not in the south 
So the next two documents really are around the Gettysburg Address. The first is John Hay's uh, diary, uh, who was Lincoln's secretary, talking about the trip to Gettysburg. And he mostly this is just an account. This would be of interest to people who just want to have evidence of Lincoln's trip to Gettysburg. Um, there's a little thing here about uh, uh, like speech writing by the president. Um, but mostly it's just about the, the crowds he met and the different stops he made along the way. So it's historically significant for that reason, but I don't think I have to say too much about it. And then we got November 19th, 1863, the Gettysburg Address, obviously coming on the heels of a two-hour speech by Edward Everett, which I've never read or never seen recorded or even summarized. Um, but we all know the Gettysburg Address, obviously, this short uh, three-paragraph speech, just three, four minutes long. Um, and obviously this is significant because it's it's redefining not just the war but america um quote uh we here highly resolve that these dead should not have died in vain that this nation under god should have a new birth of freedom and that the government of the people by the people and for the people shall not perish from the earth i think i said a little bit more about this in my series on lincoln but it's it's the culmination of what we've been talking about for, for several episodes at this point which was how emancipation was transforming the war from a war for union to a revolution. And we talked a lot in earlier episodes on this series about how the war was snowballing into a revolution on its own on its own before the policy change came. But we've seen with the Emancipation Proclamation and with the victories of at Vicksburg and Gettysburg, how the whole public opinion and opinion of leaders and generals changed very rapidly toward uh, towards the values here and what's so tragic is that this was never followed through on in reconstruction that this and how much lincoln was aware of that i'm not sure i think that is a point of controversy about what you know was lincoln's assassination in that moment in which america had had someone trip booth would lincoln have fulfilled this promise of making America uh, or a new birth of freedom for America, would he did, would he have fulfilled it as a Reconstruction president, or would he have been in would he have been um, entangled in conflicts with the radical Republicans, refusing their vision for a more moderate one? I don't know. I actually don't know. I've I've seen different opinions on that, but I like to think Lincoln would have he i mean he had his short-term practical goals of ending the war and winning the war and his long-term more radical vision i think i think they're they're both there and i think some of the more moderate positions he said about reconstruction while he's still alive come from the goal of of, of ending the war and i think maybe some of his softness for towards confederate leaders that at least uh, is hinted at in various statements and policies he pushed forth towards the end of the war. Maybe had more. Maybe he realized that these people weren't going to be in power, and and they weren't going to be an existential threat. So let's focus on the big issue of what Reconstruction really can be. I don't know. I don't think we can ever fully know what that what the policy would be. I think it's fair to say the Republican Party as a whole was 
one step ahead of maybe where most Americans were on the issue of freedom. Um, uh, I talked about that book before. Uh, what was it called? Is it Freedom National? I talked about it earlier in this series, um, which really is more about 1861 and 62, but that book is talking about how Lincoln and the Republicans were on board with emancipation early on. They just had to wait for the right moment to, to do it. All right, so that's the Gettysburg Address. Uh, obviously, we could write whole books about it, but I'm not going to be the one to do it. Next, we have a, a really fun document. This is a petition uh, by the Colored Citizens of Beaufort against impressment in North Carolina. So a couple points here just from the title. Of course, uh, they're petitioning the United States um, and they're petitioning as citizens to um, D General Benjamin Butler, who at this point, of course, wasn't he the one who, who ran New Orleans uh, when it was first occupied, but now he's involved with reconstruction efforts in the Carolinas in Virginia. And so we have 17 African Americans who who signed this petition, but it was never responded to. And basically the protest is against being forced to work for the army, right? Because there's that kind of, we saw it before, like this idea of what to do with the contraband people, uh, the contraband camps, the former slaves, uh, put them to work, right? Well, this essentially here is being protested as a sort as basically impressment and conscription. Um, which is significant. And he says, like, we're not getting paid to do this stuff and we have to start our lives. We have to start being paid. So they're demanding pay and they're demanding a right to find their own employment on their own terms. Um, but he says, we express our entire willingness to contribute to the cause of union in any way consistent with the with the, their cause as freemen and the rights of their families. And of course, he's saying, we're willing to do this we're willing to work but you must pay us and it must be based on our freedom as citizens so this is a really pretty radical document i think that's very that's showing black people reimagining their place in america as citizens so i'm going to wrap it up here there's a handful more documents but they're about the ch they're just eyewitness accounts of the battle of Luka mountain in the chattanooga campaign uh in general which of course took place a couple months after the Battle of Chickamauga. So basically that that battle only forestalled the the Union advance into Georgia for for a couple months. Um, and it was a, a total Confederate route where they were pushed from those high positions that they set up after after the Battle of Chickamauga. And we have accounts of that of that of that victory. And um, so I guess that, that sets things up for the final uh, episode about the third volume, the third year of, of the Civil War Anthology, which is, it's broken up into four years, but not, not calendar years. It's just like chronological years. Um, and the, this, so this, vol the, this next episode will take us up through February of 1864 or March, maybe. Really the handover. I think they, they break it up here with the, the handover of the Union Army in 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 general to grant and grants uh relocation to virginia and that overland campaign which will be the major theme i suppose of the next book um but let's see what else um ah, just skimming ahead we got some uh, mary chestnut some lincoln some george templeton strong so some familiar voices here um 
Ooh, hanging deserters. Wow. Let's let's uh, look forward to that too. Um, so, anyways, that will be the next episode. Um, and I guess that's it for now. So, let me know what you think about any of these issues that I've brought up. I guess this has been pretty straightforward, um, but really focusing on, I guess, on the the Gettysburg Address and the Chickamauga Chattanooga campaigns. But, uh, but uh, anyways, we'll see what uh, happens next time. Uh, I'll see you then. He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God.